If you want to open up your Bibles, as Zach said, to John chapter 11, we'll um, finish up this great chapter of God's Word this morning. John chapter 11, we'll be looking at verses 45 through 57. And uh, I've greatly enjoyed going through this chapter of God's Word, John chapter 11. I think many of us are familiar with it because of this great resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, this great sign of our Lord, this climactic seventh sign of John's gospel. But I think that we've seen there's much more in this chapter than just the resurrection of Lazarus. We've seen in John 11 the deadly effects of the fall, right? We've seen illness that affected Jesus' dear friend Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. We've seen the unbelief of the Jews. We've seen death. We've seen darkness. We've seen sickness and suffering. And we've seen all of these effects of sin vividly displayed, whether it's the sickness of Lazarus, the suffering of his sisters, or his death and decaying in the grave. But I think what we've seen more than all of this is the Lord's sovereignty over all these things. The Lord's sovereignty and the purpose of all these things being his own glory. And I think that we will see that even more so today. We'll see in our passage the religious leaders, the enemies of our Lord, come together and seek to put a plan to plot against our Lord and to ultimately put him to death. That the darkness that has kind of been under the surface throughout John's gospel, this going all the way back to John's prologue, the darkness fighting against the light, we've seen that undertones all the way through John's gospel, and now we're going to see a full-fledged effort to snuff out the light of the world. But as I've just said, what we've seen in John's gospel is that not only is our Lord sovereign over suffering, sickness, and death of his friend Lazarus as he raises him from the dead to his own glory, and therefore all of God's people, but we also see his sovereignty over his own suffering, his own crucifixion, and his own death. That no one takes his life from him but he lays it down of his own accord, and we'll see that very clearly in our passage this morning. That after Lazarus has been raised from the grave miraculously from the tomb, these religious leaders that have sort of been following our Lord have had enough. They're done. They've had enough with these miracles. They've had enough with the people following our Lord, and they now plot and conspire to kill him seeking to destroy this light of the world, snuff him out, and put him to death. But as we'll see in our passage this morning, this is all in vain. And what we'll see today, maybe more than anything, is that even though evil men and wicked rulers have intentions to try to thwart the plan of God, they cannot stop his sovereign plan and purpose not only in his holy providence in upholding and governing all things, but in his one plan of salvation for all people, all tribes, all tongues, all nations in the person and work of Christ. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's word this morning. This is the word of the Lord. This is after the resurrection of Lazarus. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, 
believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John, the apostle, reflecting back years later, says this, He, that is Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to the town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this day that we get to come together as your people gathered together under your word and by the power of your spirit to hear what you have to say to us this morning. We know that these words, though they are written by the Apostle John, are not the words of men, but are the word of God, holy and infallible, unable to err, sufficient for all we need for life and godliness, and able to make us wise unto salvation. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us to see the truths of your word as they are shown forth in the gospel of John. And that as we see the wickedness and evil of those men that would seek to put our Lord to death, we would see very clearly your holy providence and plan in purposing all things for your glory and bringing about the salvation of your people. We pray that you would help us to see these things this morning, and we ask and pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. My thought, whose murder yet is but fantastical, shakes so my single state of man. That function is smothered in surmise, and nothing is but what is not. That's a quote from Macbeth and Shakespeare. I'm sure you all have that memorized. We see in these words, ironic words that are written by Shakespeare spoken by the character Macbeth. Now, I don't know if anybody here is a fan of Shakespeare or plays, but we see here these ironic words from Macbeth. 
In the story of Macbeth, there's this man, Macbeth, and he is killing to try to gain power. He's seeking to put this man to death so that he can gain and maintain his power. And he's thinking that in doing this, he will secure his desired result, not only to get power, but to maintain it. But as you go through this play, and as the words that I just said, you will, what happens is he only finds out that it is himself who is destroyed in this process. And this is what we call dramatic irony, that he thinks that this thing, this killing of this person will bring him power and um, perseverance, but it is actually the thing that destroys him in the process. And we see very much echoes of that today in John chapter 11, that John will use this, this narrative, this tool of irony to draw out what is happening in this part of Holy Scripture. So we're going to look at three things this morning. First, in verses 45 through 48, we're going to look at the response of unbelief. We're going to see that after the resurrection of Lazarus, there's this response from the people, and it is a response of unbelief. Secondly, we're going to look at, in verses 49 through 54, the one that is put to death for the many. The one that is put to death for the many. And finally, we'll look at the plan and the providence of God. So first we see the response of unbelief. We see in verse 45 that after the working of this great miracle, indisputable Many of the Jews, it says, actually believe in our Lord. If you look there at verse 45, it says, having seen what he did, they believed in him. They believed in him. They saw the sign that our Lord um, did, and they believe. They've seen the miraculous resurrection of a man from the dead and believe. And yet, we have to ask ourselves a difficult but important question. And if you've been with us through John's gospel, you might know what this question is. If you go back to John chapter 2, a very similar thing happens in John chapter 2. Jesus performs a sign. It's actually also around the time of Passover. And it says that people saw the signs that he did and believed in him. Except it also goes on to say this. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So the question we have to ask is, what is the nature of this belief? Is it true saving belief? Is it true saving faith in Christ? Or is it false, temporary what we might call sign-seeking faith. Are these people only focused on the signs of our Lord, or are they focused on true saving faith? And as we saw in John chapter 2, Jesus knows what is in man. He knows the condition of every human heart. And I think this might shock some of us. Like, it says they believed. Can't we just take it for what it's worth? But the Apostle John won't let us do this. And if you just turn one page further in John's Gospel to John chapter 12, we see the same people that will cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This triumphal entry of our Lord are the same people that cry out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. It says, even though they saw many signs that he had did, they still did not believe in him. 
And as we know from Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells us that even if a man should rise from the dead, that it's not enough for someone to get saved. They have to hear the law and the prophets. They have to hear the fulfillment of Christ. They have to believe the gospel. This is what true saving faith is. And so we're not really told in our passage whether this was true saving faith or false temporary faith, but we see in the coming verses, we see here the next thing is a very pronounced example and response of unbelief. And we see this in verse 46. We see some of them after seeing this miracle, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They went to the religious leaders of the day. They kind of tattled on Jesus. And they said, look what he's doing. He's causing all these people to follow him. And so we see that this council is gathered together, what is called the Sanhedrin. This would have been the national rulers of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those people in power. This is the Sanhedrin. And they've come and they've gathered together to take counsel against Christ. They've gathered together to take counsel against Christ. They are plotting against our Lord. They want to eliminate this one that threatens to not only take, threaten them, but their power. And we see this in verses 47 through 48. They say this, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. So we see here that they acknowledge that Christ is able to do signs. They acknowledge that he is powerful, but they do not believe. They want to preserve their place and their power. They want to preserve their place and their position of power. They only see Jesus as a threat to themselves. They only see Jesus as a threat. They fear that people believing in this Messiah will cause this sort of earthly kingdom to rise up. It will frustrate and and will upset Caesar, his government, and the Romans, and the Romans will come and destroy their temple, their place of worship, and their power. And they don't want this. They want to preserve themselves. They've misunderstood the nature of Christ's kingdom, and they are trying to preserve themselves. They they don't see Jesus as the fulfillment of the temple. They don't see Jesus as the great high priest. They don't see him as the true king of Israel. They only see him as a threat. And so in their desperate attempts to keep their power and preserve their control, they try to eliminate the one who threatens it. But it is by trying to preserve their place and their power that they actually lose it. It is by trying to preserve their power and their place that they actually lose those things and actually much more. And this is the great irony of this passage, and it brings us to our second point this morning, the one for the many. The one for the many. In verses 49 and 50, we see the evil intentions and wicked thoughts of these men as the high priest at that time, Caiaphas, speaks up and says these words in verse 50. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation 
should perish. And we see here the murderous and evil intentions and thoughts of this man. It's as if he's saying to them, talk will not be enough. We've heard enough. We've heard enough deliberation. We must act and we must put this man to death. We've had enough talking. We've had enough deliberation. We need to put him to death. This has gone on long enough. This man is a threat to us, our nation, our power, and our people, and he must be snuffed out. This is what the words of Caiaphas are intended to communicate. And notice how he speaks. Not only does he compromise God's law and justify this murderous, heinous sin, but he does so by claiming it is for the greater good. Notice how Caiaphas changes and mixes up these words to justify this. He justifies his sin by claiming that it is for the greater good, quote-unquote. Right? He's saying it is better to commit this kind of small sin so that our whole nation and really our greed for power can be saved. It is better. It is for the greater good, right? Just trust me, this is what's best for us. And while it's easy for us to kind of point the finger at Caiaphas and say, how could he do that? How could he justify the murder of someone for the sake of this quote-unquote greater good? But how many times have we done this in our own lives, right? Justified our sin for what we think might be the greater good. Rationalizing to ourselves that it was actually better that we sin in this small way so that we could have this better result at the end, right? How many of us have said something like this? It's okay that I stole. It's so I could maybe spend more time with my family, right? I didn't have to work so hard for this money, and so I can spend more time with my family, right? It's justifying a sin for what we can deem the greater good. Or it's okay that I lie to my friends and my family. I'm trying to protect them. I'm trying to keep them from harm. It's okay that I lie to them. Or maybe you've heard this one in our day and I think it hits very close to home for some of us. It's okay that I kill. It's okay that I murder this unborn child. They wouldn't have had that good of a life anyway, right? This is what we call the argument for the greater good. I'll do this sin. I'll justify this sinful, heinous thing for what I deem to be the greater good. And what this really, it's wicked and it's sinful, but it's in one sense trying to play God, right? I get to say what's right and what's wrong. I get to decide. And so even though this is what the high priest says to justify his sin, he's seeking to kill Christ. He's seeking to put him to death for his own wicked and evil purposes. We see something very interesting in verse 51 we see that the Apostle John here reveals that there's something more going on than meets the eye. There's something more going on than meets the eye. That this is a commentary from John years later as he's writing this gospel, reflecting back on the words of Caiaphas, carried along by the Holy Spirit, he pulls back the curtain. He pulls back the curtain and shows us the mysterious providence of God and His sovereign plan over even the sinful deeds 
and actions of wicked men. He says in verses 51 and 52 that Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That these words of the high priest Caiaphas were actually a prophecy that Christ would die for his people. And you're thinking to yourself, Caiaphas didn't mean that. He sought to kill our Lord. He sought to put him to death for wicked ends. But the Apostle John says that this is actually a prediction that Christ would die for his people, the true Passover lamb that would be slain. And not only for the nation of Israel, but for every for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, as John says. This is what Paul will say in Galatians 6, that this is the Israel of God, the church of God, the elect, the people bought by the blood of Christ. Or as Jesus will say in John chapter 10, so that there can be one sheep, one shepherd, one flock of God. And what's so amazing about this is that he, that is Caiaphas, does not know what he is saying. (laughs) He knows not what he is speaking. And the question that we ask ourselves at this point is, how is this possible? How is this possible? How can something that was said and done with malicious and malintent be used for good? How can the words and actions of sinful men like Caiaphas be part of the sovereign purpose and plan of God. How is this possible? How can this be? And the answer to this question is the wise and holy providence of the triune God. The answer is the wise and holy providence of our triune God. That we confess that the God of all the universe who knows all things, has decreed all things, and has created all things, is also preserving and governing all things by His wise and holy providence. That He upholds up things by the power of His hand, purposing them for His own glory. And this even includes the evil intentions and actions of men. And we know this because In Genesis chapter 50, as um, Zach alluded to this morning, we see in Genesis chapter 50, in the story of Joseph, this man who was beaten and left for dead by his brothers, at the end of the story, after he has risen to power and saved really all of the world, in a sense, by from famine, he says these words: What you meant for evil. God meant for good. What these brothers intended for evil, God meant for good. What they intended for their own sinful and wicked purposes, God intended for good. That many should be saved from famine and death by the hand of Joseph. And so what we see in John chapter 11 is that what these Pharisees and religious leaders meant for evil, the senseless murder of the perfect Son of God, 
God meant for good. God purposed for good. He intended for good that sinners might be saved from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Or we can say it like this, the death of the one for the salvation of the many. The substitutionary death of the righteous on the cross for the sake of the unrighteous. And I was helped by um, John Gill in this passage. He says this, Decreed in the counsel of God from the foundation of the world, agreed to by the Son in the covenant of redemption, foretold by the prophets from the beginning of the world, typified and shadowed by the sacrifices of the Old Testament, predicted by Christ himself in his earthly ministry, accomplished in the fullness of time by the Lord Jesus Christ. The death of the one for the salvation of the many, the righteous for the unrighteous, the true Passover lamb slayed to cover the sin of his people. This is the power of Almighty God, who is able to take the evil intentions of men and intend them for his purposes. But what we'll see is that this God, this triune Almighty God, is not only able to take the sinful words of Caiaphas and use them for his glorious purposes, but he has also sovereignly intended the evil actions of lawless men who would crucify and kill our Lord for his sovereign purpose and plan. He not only takes these wicked words of Caiaphas, but as we read this morning in Acts chapter 2, he even intended the wicked purposes of sinful man who would crucify and kill our Lord for his glorious plan of salvation. The crucifixion itself, though lawless and sinful by those who committed it, was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. (laughs) This is a mystery in a sense. It's the glorious providence of our God. And so what we see here is that nothing is outside of the plan and purpose of God. Nothing is beyond His sovereign providence. His plan cannot be thwarted. His purposes cannot be destroyed. And so that brings us to our third and final point this morning, the plan and the providence of God. The plan and the providence of God that we read this morning from Psalm chapter 2. We read this morning from Psalm chapter 2 that the nations rage in vain. The peoples plot in vain. It's futile. It's fruitless. And we see in our passage that even though this increasing hostility from the Jewish leaders will cause Jesus to withdraw from a time for Jerusalem, even though the order will be given for Jesus to be seized and arrested, God's plan cannot be thwarted by these sinful men. These religious leaders, ultimately under the influence of Satan, will seek to kill and destroy the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed servant of the Lord promised in Psalm chapter 2. But as we read there, This is no surprise to God, but it is actually the carrying out of His plan. What does it say in Psalm chapter 2? The Lord sits in heaven and laughs. 
He laughs at the plan of the wicked. They think they have come to thwart his plan, but the Lord holds them in derision. The wicked rulers taking counsel together against the Christ was promised all the way back in Psalm chapter 2. But it is actually the very means that God will use to bring about the salvation of his people. As Psalm 2 says, the heritage of the nation. That just as God used the wicked prophet Balaam in Numbers, he also uses the mouth of of the wicked man, Caiaphas, to bring about his purposes. And as we look at all of Scripture, we see that this low-born king, this one that was born in a manger, will be the perfect Passover lamb that takes away the sin of the world. That he will be the one that is set not on the earthly Mount Zion, but the heavenly Mount Zion, the holy hill of the Lord. And as Psalm 2 says, the eternally begotten Son who is the only place of refuge for God's people. Christ will accomplish salvation. Nobody's going to take His life from Him. He is going to lay it down of His own accord. He alone has authority to take it up and to lay it down. This is the power of our Savior. And so, As we talked about, this is the great irony of this passage, that these evil men think, as does Satan, that by killing Christ and snuffing him out, that they will save their nation, their temple, and themselves. But it is actually them who are hung on the gallows of their own making. That in 70 AD, it is actually them who are destroyed, their temple that is destroyed, and their nation that is brought to ruins within that very generation, just as our Lord predicted. That this is the great dramatic irony that John is trying to show us. They think that they can kill this man and preserve their life, but it's actually the opposite. And this is what Satan did in the cross, right? He thinks he's got Christ by the neck. He's like, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to put the Son of God to death. I'm going to destroy him. And then I'll have power. But it is actually the death of the incarnate Son of God that crushes the head of the serpent and wins salvation for God's people. This is the irony of the wicked men. And the Lord, as we said, laughs at the plan and purpose of evil men. And so, as we step away from this passage this morning, we think about how does this change how we live? How does this think about? How does this change how we think about life and um, and the world that we live in? And I think two things this morning. The first is we have comfort that our sovereign God is in control of all things. We have comfort this morning knowing that our sovereign God is in control of all things. That even though everything in our world seems to be crumbling at the seams, everything in our world seems to be falling apart, our triune God is working all things for His glory. Even though evil men seek to destroy true religion and rid themselves of God and His law, our God is sovereign and justice will be executed on the last day. And even though kings and rulers set themselves against the Lord, against Christ, and against His people, 
the Lord sits in heaven and laughs. The Lord sits in heaven and laughs because he is sovereign over all things. And so for us this morning, this should give us great and profound comfort in the face of difficulty and trials. Let's be honest, our world is really messed up. Our world is really messed up. And I think we sense that very acutely this morning. We see the world around us, seems like it's coming apart, and we can think to our head, how is this possible? How is God in control? How can these things be? And we see in our passage that the Lord is able to purpose all things for His glory. His providence has not come to an end. He is upholding the world. He's governing it towards the purpose that He has intended. And so we can take comfort knowing that God is in control and we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear. Our Lord is sovereign and He will bring about His holy purposes. But the second thing I want to look at this morning is what we see in this passage, even though it is spoken in one sense by the mouth of a donkey, we see here the heart of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the death of the one for the many, the righteous given up for the unrighteous, or what we could call the technical term, this is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement penal substitutionary atonement. Penal meaning one paid the penalty. Substitution meaning in our place. Atonement meaning atoning for our sin. Our sin placed on him, him fully paying the debt and wrath that our sin deserved. The one suffering in our place to atone for our sin. The one for the many, the righteous for the unrighteous. That in one sense, we can say Caiaphas, without knowing it, spoke in very simple words the truth of the gospel. The one being put to death for the many. The true, perfect Lamb of God put to death for wicked and vile sinners like you and me. That he might gather into one the children of God from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And it's just amazing to think about the unity of God's word because what do we see? Not only is this promised in Psalm chapter 2, but in Isaiah 53, we see a vivid picture of what Christ has done for sinners like us. And I'll close with these words. The prophet Isaiah says this, speaking about the suffering servant, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Listen to these words. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. (laughs) This is the gospel. The righteous one to make the many 
counted as righteous. Not righteous in themselves, not righteous because of their deeds, but counted as righteous in this great work of justification. This is the hope we have, promised in Psalm chapter 2, pictured in Isaiah 53 in the suffering servant, and brought to fulfillment in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. This is the hope we have this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for your holy providence that in fact everyone participates in, believer and unbeliever. Every person experiences the providence of God causing the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. But we're reminded in Scripture that it is only your people, your church, bought with the blood of Christ that experience your special providence by which we have salvation from our sins, justification, adoption, sanctification, and new life with Christ forever. This is the hope we have in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was righteous, put to death, suffering in our place, so that the many may be counted as righteous, not in themselves, but on the last day they might stand before the Lord and say, the Lord is our righteousness. This is our hope this morning. This is our only means by which we may be saved. Help us to put our faith and trust in Christ and rest on Him alone as He has offered to us in the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.